When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. <laughs> as always, I am your ghost host, Drac Morta, and joining me, as always, is my sister in crime, the spellbinding Swanthula. Thank you, Drac. I'd like to start off by wishing both you and the listeners a very happy new year filled with magic, fortune, and success. Well, thank you, and I wish you the same just. Not as much as I get. Just a little bit less than you. <laughs> what a bitch. <laughs> Speaking of New Year, we are starting off 2022 with the newly crowned drag super monster. And we have officially completed the Boulay Brothers Dragula season four. So congratulations. Congratulations to you too. How do you feel? I feel good. It truly was a long and painful path to the top. <laughs> Just as you designed yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> All the way to the bitter end, wasn't it? Right to the bitter end and even a little bit beyond the bitter end. Yeah. A little past it. Yeah. <laughs> Most births take nine months and I think ours did too. It was like nine months of laboring over what is a season of Dragula and then now we have a new ruling monster to enter the family. And I'm excited. I'm excited about the winner. I'm excited about our finalists. I'm excited about the cast. I couldn't be happier with the show in general how it turned out there was lots of ups and downs i definitely wasn't expecting the end to be as bumpy as it was nope <laughs> thought we were in the clear didn't we <laughs> i guess so but you know what people always have something up their sleeve right 
I think life has prepared us for that, though. Yeah. Like, I feel fully prepared to see something coming, even if it was unexpected, deal with it, get over it just as fast as it sprouted up and move on. Which is what we've done, right? Yeah. Right now, we're all just kind of basking in the afterglow of a wonderful season, and we're kind of focused on the future. Yeah. I think this is kind of a wonderful downtime just for a few minutes when we've just gotten over a huge explosion of energy and now we can settle before we mount our next attack and go towards our next project. I think it's something that we've traditionally done that other people might find useful at home that are listening. I don't know. Is it going to take some time at the beginning of the year, the first week, to review what your last year was like, but to set your goals for the new year? Because if you kind of come into the year and you just let your life drive you, then it'll quickly be New Year's again and you'll be like, what did I do this year? What did I do with myself? Did I achieve any of my goals? And the answer, if you don't put some thought into it, is no, you did not. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. But that's something we've always done. We kind of lay it out and we're like, what are our primary goals? I say pick like three primary goals. And if everything you do that year doesn't direct towards those goals, you are off your path. It's very wise. And definitely don't forget to make time for yourself. There's the group goals that we all have and we strive for, but... You can't lose yourself in that. Even as an artist, like you can be adding your energy to a big project where a lot of people come together like Dragula. It's many, many voices to make the chorus of that wicked song. But you have to be able to sidestep and tend to yourself for a little while, too. It's easy to get lost in that. Yeah. And that's something that we talked with the competitors for the Blade Brothers Dragula about because this year... The fandom was extremely toxic, wasn't it? Out of control. Yeah. Out of control completely. And I think we learned a few years ago after the success of season two that the fandom can take on a shape that you might not love and can be unexpected. And you kind of have to deal with it. It's part of creating something that's out there in the public space Mm because everyone has their opinions and feelings about it. But this year, there was an evolution of the fan base that was unexpected and it was ugly. I say fan base. I use that term lightly because I think... Fans of the show span across all sorts of lifestyles and countries and age groups and everything. But I feel like there is a certain very vocal Twitter based (laughs) group of fans that maybe we didn't have in the past. I think I don't know. Like they're a new addition to the fan base that are quite unwelcome, if you ask me. (laughs) It may be that. And I've thought about this a little bit, too. It's just as the show becomes more visible then there's just more eyes on it. Yeah. So these are just maybe new voices or more of the, the voices that maybe have always been there but haven't been so vocal in the past. Honestly, like people should just be careful about loving something to death because sometimes fans become so obsessed with something and all the details about it and they get so passionately invested in it that they almost break it. It's like, mm. this is my sacred toy. And then like they just that. sort of keep fiddling with it until they destroy it. No, you I know? like that analogy that you're creating. And all reality shows have this problem, right? Whether it's like the Real Housewives or 90 Day Fiance, whatever it is, there's like huge communities of people that go online and like dig into everything about them and rip them apart after every episode and try to tweet at them and stuff. But the difference between that and this is this is a very homegrown, queer produced show with real queer people that are not superstars. These are just regular everyday people that are performers that are sort of stepping outside of their comfort zone and into a spotlight that they're not used to. Yeah. They're not necessarily equipped for the brutality that comes along with it. And we try to let them know because we've learned over the years, like you have to build up a thick skin and you think you might be ready for it. And maybe you are, but there's always at least a few that take those whips and blows that the public gives them after they've been on a platform that's 
national and international and you put your life out there, you really do have to be prepared and build up a thick skin to be able to repel all of the opinions that everyone will have about you. It is not easy. It's not. And just in closing, I want to give a thank you once again to all the competitors from the show for being as strong as they were during filming and as the show is airing because a lot of them got a lot of grief. Yeah. They're all celebrated, but a lot of them got grief too. And I just want to tell them thank you for putting yourselves out there and dealing with all that. Yeah. This may not be a savory subject to breach now, but I think it's worth mentioning. I think the ugliness of our country kind of can sprout sometimes. And in the way of the fandom, it showed it through a racism. Right. A racism against certain cast members that took a disproportionate amount of heat for who they are or their voices or didn't get in as many followers or as much love as other cast members. It kind of breaks my heart to see that. It's a sad reminder of this is the country that we live in. But I try to tell myself, I believe better of our country. I believe better of the fans. I think that there are a lot of people out there and I'm calling to them now to show the members of our cast that fall into the minorities, show them love, show them support. Where you might be quiet, extend yourself because other people are extending their hate and it's only the other voices that can come forward and give them that support to kind of nullify that and remind them that there are people that we share this country with and we share this life with that do love and support them and they need to be vocal too. It's like a call to action. I'm saying it now. And it's kind of like a mother predator. It's like, don't fuck with my babies. Like, (laughs) don't. And let's be honest. Some of the people on the show that got the most hate made the show very interesting. And I think it would have been quite different were they not there in the first place. So people should really think about the hate that they're giving certain cast members because the show was good. Yeah. Let's talk about the tour. Let's talk about the tour. So the season of the show is over and now come the rewards. So we get to tour all over the UK, the US, and I think Canada too. To share the art of our drag monsters live and in person. I can't wait. And this is something that I get to look forward to because the in-person element of the show is the most fun to me. And of course, we've been denied it now because of COVID and because of like shutdowns. And Mm -hmm. we've had so little opportunity to kind of bask in the energy of a live performance. And that's something like everyone in the room gets to share in, not just the people on the stage, because as you know, and for those of you that don't know, when we create a Dragula show, it's very interactive. It's totally immersive. There are stupid ways that you get pulled onto the stage or really fun things. (laughs) You might get scared. You might get turned on. I can kind of guarantee a combination of these things will happen. And it's all part of that like live experience. And you might get some food thrown on you or blood or something yeah. like that. Who You never know. You really never know. You might come off the stage with clown makeup painted on your face and permanent marker. That's yeah. happened too. You might get up there in a flop wig <laughs> and deliver some kind of stupid monologue and people would love you for it. And uh, your new drag character will be born right then and there. <laughs> The UK leg of the tour is starting in the middle of March and goes to the end. That's 12 cities. And then the US leg will be the end of April to the end of May. And now there's talk of extending for a couple of weeks through Canada. So it's a lot of I am very excited. If you are listening and you're going to come to the tour, make sure you go to DragulaLive.com. And if tickets are not on sale yet, definitely sign up for the pre-save because you'll get a message the minute they go on sale and you'll be able to scoop up those meet and greet tickets, which from what I understand are sold out in the UK, I think, right? I know a lot of the dates are. Don't quote me on that, but I checked not that long ago and there were just a few cities that had the meet and greet option still available. So many people always say, get your tickets before they sell out, but they're never really going to sell out and you know it. I swear, if I tell you something's going to sell out, it's going to sell out. So if you want it, you better get it now because it really will. 
And that's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, specific dates for the cities in the U.S. leg will be announced shortly, but that is like the end of April to the end of May, and it's like 20 cities across the U.S. We're really excited about it. I think it's time we bring in reinforcements and welcome our co-host and co-producer, Ian DeVogler, to the show. Ian, welcome to the show. Oh, God, I'm scared and a little turned on. <laughs> Hi, how's it going? <laughs> by what? <laughs> <laughs> by the idea of the tour. And also by the idea that, I don't know, like a nine-month pregnancy, I just keep trying and it just doesn't stick. Oh I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Happy New Year, Ian. Glad <laughs> to see you haven't changed a bit. Uh, not at all. How are you guys? We're good. How did you enjoy We freed you and let you run around for a while alone. I feel like I was freed, but almost in a weird sort of like matrix sort of way where I got kind of like let out physically, but then like the mental shackles were still there. There was a lot to deal with on the home front. So it was definitely nice to have a break. Looking forward to all the death and destruction that we're going to wreak on the world in 2022. Me too. I was told you should free a bird and then if it comes <laughs> back to you, it means it likes you. And if it doesn't come back to you, you push the little button, you know, the little bomb on their <laughs> neck that blows their head off. <laughs> So we tried that with you, and I'm happy to say that here you are. <laughs> Look, I think after, what, like three or four failed experiments, the programming is pretty good on me. I mean, you know, there's a firmware update coming later, but, you know, she's good. Yes, I agree. <laughs> we get closer to our pinnacle creation each time we do it. I think Ian has achieved it. I think so, too. Oh, oh my gosh. Just need to update that pregnancy chip. Anyway. And that, now you have your own people you have to train. <laughs> <laughs> Those updates will be coming shortly. <laughs> So you're excited about the tour? I can't wait. Touring is one of those things that I feel like has always been kind of at the core of what the three of us do. The live show element of working together is honestly one of my favorite things that we do. And it's just exciting. This is going to be the biggest, the baddest, the best tour ever. I love all the performers. I can't wait for people to see what we have in store. Bitch, get your fucking tickets right now at (laughs) DragulaLive.com. That's (laughs) DragulaLive.com. And there is a surprise that I can announce about the U.S. tour, which is that we are going to be bringing on random people throughout the U.S. to come and join the performance. So for one night, you might see Louisiana. The next night, you might see Madeline or people from season four. So I think that'll be a lot of fun. Oh, totally. exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that you put that out there, my phone is going to be blowing up with all the previous competitors. <laughs> like, girl, I heard you're coming to New York. I heard oh, you're coming to Texas. I hope they do. I'm, I'm excited to feature them, honestly. What's your favorite part of the tour? I think I can kind of say one that I feel like is deep in the recesses of the three of our core memories here. The first stop of every tour that we go on when you hear drag oh, and you yeah. just hear the crowd just fucking go ape shit and they know all the words they're screaming it if you could bottle and sell that emotion girl we wouldn't have to make so the show good. anymore it <laughs> it is so good. the last one was in london right yeah yeah we opened in london that was so good <sighs> That video still is so epic. Yeah. We were getting ready for the London show and one of the people on the tour came running up and they're like, look at my phone, look at my phone. And it was a video going from the front doors down the block, around the corner for blocks and blocks. And blo- oh, I mean, crazy. talk about like building the energy. I was so excited to get out there on the stage. And we did the most that night. I was like, <laughs> two shows, do this, switch into this, let's do this game. And I was like, we're cutting some of this shit before tomorrow night. <laughs> oh my God, brand new wigs, <laughs> brand new outfits, brand new shows. Ooh, that was hard. Ooh, girl, I don't know the Celsius to Fahrenheit here. It was fucking cold. And I'm mm-hmm. out there just in, you know, just a pussy square. And I was sweating. I was like, oh mama, I got to pick these drums up. Louisiana, don't yell please (laughs) daddy don't touch me there oh yes not my no-no square 
No, that's a really good one. When that first wow happens at the beginning of every show, it's super invigorating. Seeing the crowd reaction to, yeah. not just to us, but also to whatever monsters out on the stage too, like them sharing in that like love and celebration of just being there, fans like freaking out because Saints in front of them or Sigourney or whatever, you know. It's I love it. Cool. You know, we get to travel a lot on our own and perform and kind of soak up the love. So when we go with the group, I love to see them get love because that's their mm-hmm. first time. Some of yeah. them for seeing crowds like that or being in front of that kind of group and seeing yeah. how much people love them. So very special. Very rewarding. Look at our monsters we create. Yeah. <laughs> Observe them. Worship them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Ian, what kind of news do you have for us here at this first part of 2022? Now that 2021 is officially dead and buried, with little to no chance of its ghoulish visage reanimating and haunting us in the middle of the night, I am beyond thrilled to bring you the first Creatures of the Night current events fresh from the grave of 2022. As always, it is my pleasure to be conjuring macabre machinations from the world of Hollywood, horror, and the violent vivisecting intersection of all things terrifying in Tinseltown. And while there's plenty of time for doom and gloom, let's start tonight's selection of stories with something positive from the depths of Camp Crystal Lake. Last year, we gave listeners a bit of insight into the bloody legal battle for the domestic screenplay rights of the Friday the 13th franchise, with the original screenplay writer, Victor Miller, filing a lawsuit against franchise director and series rights holder, Sean Cunningham, in an attempt to regain the rights to the original screenplay. As of the recording of this episode of Creatures of the Night, the legal battle has come to a close, with Victor Miller securing the rights to his original screenplay after Cunningham failed to file a cert petition with the U.S. Supreme Court in time to retain U.S. rights of the original script. This news is complicated for horror fans, though, as the recent developments essentially boil down to Miller owning the rights to the first and original screenplay, but Cunningham owning the rights to everyone's favorite hunky, hockey mask-wearing, machete-wielding steroid muscle Mary, effectively putting the franchise at a standstill until the two can come to some sort of agreement. Much like the franchise in question, my fear is that this legal battle will rise from the dead a few more times before it's safe to get into Camp Crystal Lake with your titties out anytime soon. I know you'll find a way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's not done yet, right? But it's a positive Mm -hmm. step forward. But it's certainly not any sort of indication that there's going to be a new movie soon. No, I read that it even makes the idea of like, oh, a new movie or a new IP even more difficult. Miller has the U.S. rights, but then Cunningham has the rights to like global distribution and to the actual character of Jason himself. It's really complicated. It's a mess. You can tell it's an absolute mess. And this is kind of ringing similar to the way that the Hellraiser franchise fought for years and years. And it didn't matter how much fans would want to see Pinhead back on the screen. It didn't matter at all. The original lawsuit came out in 2016. So this is a now six-year battle. Wow. I mean, let's be honest. They needed to take a break from that franchise. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be real. They did. They needed to take a break after like the third one. Yeah. (laughs) No, no other horror icon has transformed quite as much as Jason Voorhees did. We went from like, hi, it was his mom Mm -hmm. to like little kid with lots of problems. Basically fast forward to like necrotic muscle Mary in space. Steroids from space. Getting struck by lightning and digging out of the grave and like bigger than any fucking hulking steroid queen you'd ever met. It was just like wild. It was like a Midwestern queen who (laughs) arrived in WeHo. Yeah. And then the next summer you're like, holy shit, what happened to you? (laughs) Totally. I mean, listen, Jason is hot, but I don't know, girl. I feel like she definitely needed a few more years in the grave. Mm, I don't know. Anyways, I think it's good news, right? Yeah. Like you said, it's a good step forward. 
While the Marvel Cinematic Universe doesn't always exist in the world of horror, the multiverse is infinite, and after seeing Doctor Strange's wig in Spider-Man No Way Home, I, for one, am terrified. But, for a more objective horror spin on the MCU, Norman Reedus has been all but confirmed as the new Ghost Rider by way of the Walking Dead star fanning the hell flames all throughout the Christmas holiday with hundreds of tweets and articles speculating his involvement in the Leather Daddy motorcycle Marvel movie from hell. On the sour side of things in the multiverse of madness, Morbius, the Jared Leto goes from sickly twink to emo Jim Bunny bat person anti-hero flick, has been delayed again for the, drumroll please, seventh time, with a new release date announced for April 1st, 2022. Representatives for the film have cited the COVID-19 Omicron variant as the cause for the delays and are hopeful that the delay will lead to a better box office performance for the film. I'm no expert, but after having seen the trailer about 100 times over the holidays, personally, I don't think any number of delays will help the film or Jared Leto's performance. I'm into Morbius. I want to see it. As you know, I'm a vampire file. Anything in the vampire world, I'm there to watch it. Even if it's going to suck and Jared Leto's going to fuck it all up, I'm going to be there watching it. I want it to be good. Like, I really do. I actually like Jared Leto when he's not being, like, a total ass, but I don't know. The last trailer, I feel like they added this new part where it's like, you know, they keep hinting at like, oh, well, what are Morbius's powers going to be in this version? And it's like, okay, yes, he can kind of teleport and he's got super strength and he's kind of a bat. But the latest trailer, he's like, well, let's see what else I can do. And then he starts flying in like the stupidest way. I'm like, oh, I wish you didn't fly like that. Mm, I haven't seen that one. Oh, she rough mama. Can you imagine? <laughs> Someone's like, okay, you're going to get powers and your power is you can fly. And you're going to be like, yes. They're like, but oh. you can only do it if you look really <laughs> stupid while you're doing it. <laughs> it's bad because like just to like describe it, it's like, you know, like Superman flies hands forward and everyone kind of has their own way of flying. But his is like arms to his side, like at a 45 degree angle, just like face first. I'm like, oh, that's how he flies. Yeah, that's it's weird. Real, it is very weird. Sounds kind of like telekinetic, right? Maybe. I don't know. All I'm picturing is like, and I don't know why, <laughs> Michael Jackson in the smooth criminal video when he's kind of yeah. like leaning in at that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like if you took that and then just like you clip him into the sky, like in the subway, it's really weird. Just airbrush her in and like hit the fan, the, the wind machine. Maybe that's what the delay was. He wasn't really going to fly, oh. but they're like, well, we got some stills of him standing upwards. Let's just float them through the air oh my god <laughs> into it jared are you okay <laughs> and finally i have two real world nightmares to terrify electrify and pacify your inner child sort of first uk-based company serial killer has just launched pre-orders for the first officially licensed serial featuring scream's Ghostface killer ahead of the release of the new scream film with a flavor titled strawberries and scream Made in collaboration between Paramount and Fun World, the cereal is only available for UK customers who can expect their box of strawberries and scream to arrive just before the film debuts on January 14th, 2022. Lastly, a mother living in the United States reported last week that after asking her Amazon Alexa for a fun activity for her and her child to complete together during a rainy day, the machine that is obviously a Skynet Terminator in training suggested a recent TikTok challenge whereby they should, quote, stick a penny into a live electrical socket. After reporting the potentially dangerous response to Amazon, the company took swift action, updating the software to exclude putting pennies into light sockets from future searches. If you'll excuse me, those are all my current events I have for listeners tonight, and I have a few pennies in my pocket that are in dire need of a good electrical socket-sized home. Now, when I read that, too, I thought it sounded very like, oh my god, you know? But when you read it further, there's basically a TikTok challenge to yeah. do that that won't kill you. 
And so mm. the AI like saw it on the internet and was like, okay, I mean, yes, yeah. of course it's crazy. Totally. A vision of like dystopia from the future where the Definitely. machines start turning and telling little kids to like kill themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Which I mean, I don't know if that's the future that I want or if that's more fun, but you know. Well, if 2022 is anything like 2020, I'm like, I'm going to be first in line at the fucking socket. <laughs> you I'm know like, what? Oh. Before we finish our news, let's do a very quick <gasps> psychic person's test. Oh. Before we do, that strawberry is in Scream, no. <laughs> Just no. And I have a weird feeling that Scream is going to suck. Scream is going to suck. This is going to be my psychic person. My first prediction for 2022. Scream is going to suck because they are trying way too hard. I feel like they're so overdoing it. I mean, I'm nervous because the hype is so big. I mean, I saw on Twitter, Phil Noville Jr. was talking about, he's like, the hype around this feels like this is the horror fans Spider-Man. Everyone is looking forward to this. And I'm like, mama, that's a big hype to follow. It's going to (laughs) suck. And isn't that cereal just Frankenberry like reskinned? Probably. I don't know. I, you know what Um, I think so. Was that like about like the you know, Count, Count Chocula? Chocula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It's yeah. the queen. And no, and <laughs> don't forget Booberry. Uh, oh, yes. If there are any listeners out there in the UK who want to bring us a box of strawberries and scream. Don't, do not bring that to us. They'll I could bring definitely, like a hundred fucking boxes. No, I know what we'll be having for breakfast after the London show. Exactly. I could use something to snack on in my little crypt. Bring Ian cereal. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part about the UK is they bring the best gifts. So if you ruin it by telling them to bring a cereal and then that's all we get, I'm going to be pissed. We're going to get makeup wipes and cereal and I'm going to leave. Okay, let me rephrase that. If there are listeners in the UK who want to bring us strawberries and scream cereal, you have to also bring a different... That can't be the only one. Christmas is different in this house tonight, mama. All right, let's get down with the psychic test. Okay, so it's very simple. I just want to know, what do you think is going to be the most cataclysmic event of 2022. So what what I mean is like every year there's like something like this girl fell in a well or there's a crazy snowstorm or there's COVID. Trump gets elected. Oh, God. (laughs) What do you think? Do you have any inklings about what will be the craziest sort of like catastrophe? I'm going to go with something cyber-y. I'm going to say that Facebook is going to go down for a period longer than 24 hours. And with that comes everything that Facebook controls. I think it's going to send shockwaves. People are not going to know what to do for a minute. And it's going to be crazy. Hmm. Do you think there'll be like permanent changes or will it just go down and come back up? But you don't know whatever happened. I think it'll go down. It'll be a result of like a cybersecurity breach. Hmm. Like, I don't think it's going to be like, ooh, plan maintenance. I think it's going to be like, ooh, girl, all your info is out there. I feel like that's like a January happening. That's just <laughs> that's that's like a, before this episode <laughs> airs. That's pretty right now. Ian's <laughs> predicting what happened last week. <laughs> I'm like, this is actually the news for next episode. <laughs> What about you? Mm, I don't like this one. You don't? Well, you I, have I, to play. I'm not projecting negativity. Uh, I think that probably the most devastating travesty of 2022 will be the tour dates will sell out and our fans won't be able to see us when they want to. Oh, tragic. Devastating. Hmm. What about you, Drac? I'm wondering if there'll be an AI issue okay. or aliens. Okay. Oh, oh my God. Speaking of, did you see that NASA has now hired a priest to go into space? Girl. Mm -hmm. Why? I hate it here. Get me (laughs) out of here. This planet sucks. Because if 
they find aliens. They want to be like, look how stupid we are. <laughs> Here is this guy with some fairy tales. I feel like we are 100% not ready for disclosure. I feel no. like the second that happens, just get ready. Like anti-vaxxers is the tip of the iceberg. Let it burn. <laughs> <laughs> so on Priests in Space, we're going to take a break. <laughs> And when we return, we will be diving into this episode's Creature Feature Movie Review. Stay tuned. UK fans of the Boulay Brothers' Dragula, now is your time. The official Boulay Brothers' Dragula World Tour kicks off in the UK this March with stops in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Newcastle, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, London, Nottingham, Leeds, Sheffield, Brighton, and Bristol. We'll be bringing our top competitors of the season with us for a show you'll have to see to believe. General admission and meet and greet tickets are on sale now at DragulaLive.com. Join us or die. Welcome back to the show, and welcome to this episode's Creature Feature Movie Review. For this episode, we're going back in time to review Black Christmas, a film that was written and directed by Bob Clark in 1974, and that's been credited as being one of the genre's earliest slasher films, notably having influenced John Carpenter's Halloween and many, many others after that. Before we start, I want to point out that reviewing a Christmas movie in January may seem a little odd, but this is a great film that we didn't have time to review in December due to covering the Blade Brothers Dragula, and we told listeners that it was coming, so here we are. New watch for you, right? Yes, new watch for me. So let's start with Miss Ian. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Let's keep it loose. What did you think of it overall? I feel like the pressure is really on. It's not. Just share your feelings. I fucking loved it. I love Black Christmas. I thought it was fucking fabulous. I feel like Black Christmas is scary. It's really kind of sexually charged at times. It just feels like the 70s. It reminds me a lot of Texas Chainsaw, which came out the same year. I think Black Christmas is awesome. If you haven't seen the original Black Christmas, go watch it now. I mean, this was actually a first watch for me, too. It was kind of one of those classics that sort of just slipped through my net. And, of course, around the holiday season, all of those, like, oh, the 10 best films to watch Mm -hmm. around Christmas, Black Christmas was on all of them. So I'm like, you know, let's watch Black Christmas this year. And what a spell it cast. Yeah. I mean, it still stands up 50 years after it came out or more. And it has genuine scares, like some amazing kills that are really memorable. Mm -hmm. And now after so many slasher films and other horror movies, we've seen people die in a multitude of ways, but (laughs) there's one in particular that stands out here. I mean, there's a few actually, but there's one which I actually think is kind of beautiful and just overall it's awesome. So let's look at like the idea of the movie, right? It is just people in a sorority sorority house yeah. sorority yeah. house and there's someone stalking them it's like a mm-hmm. really simple story but it keeps you glued right yeah well i think that description is accurate but it also is like the movie there's way more underneath the surface than meets the eye yeah it's like a christmas present where you just start unwrapping and it's like a, a present that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside you know it's like kind of it's one part murder mystery it's a psychological thriller it has great kills 
it's really layered. It's honestly just beautiful. And now you can see, like, because this is a movie that escaped me as well until we watched it recently. And the cover is so iconic mm-hmm. of the character sitting in the rocking chair with the bag over their head. And I don't know why I misinterpreted this, but like growing up, it's an iconic movie cover. I saw it a million times and I do not know why I never rented it or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Because I always thought it was like a granny in the rocking chair. I don't know. There was just something about it. I was like, I'm not into it. It's like Christmas and there's a granny in a rocking chair. I thought it was going to be terrible. You were walking through the video section. You saw it and you're like, Miss Thing, I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it evaded me for so long yeah. to sit down and watch. It was so different oh, than like, what I expected. It, it's so good. And it actually, it's genuinely like eerie. And it's unnerving. I, I was uncomfortable. And you know, the movie is winning when it's able to do that to the it's, viewer. Yeah. It's not scary because it's gory. Mm-hmm. It's scary because it legitimately scary. And it's very moody too. Yeah. It has that particular Northeastern in the winter snow kind of vibe. Like it just feels scary. It was stylish, too. That's the thing. I think Bob Clark had a very specific sort of vision for Mm -hmm. what this film was going to feel like. And I was doing some reading after I watched it because there was a different cut or there was a different part of the script where they were like, let's make the kills like really gory. Oh, I read that, too. And the choice was to not do that. And it's really about the ambiance of not really knowing so many details. It wasn't about the violence or the death. It was just that stalking presence that I think it was just kind of throughout. Absolutely. I feel like the stalking presence is also counterweighted with that sense of and this is the thing that I am terrified of what is happening in your house that you can't see and Mm -hmm. I feel like the moment that they have the character who does get suffocated with the bag she's in the attic the entire time they're like where is she where is Claire where is Claire Claire has been sitting in the attic looking out the whole ass movie like that (laughs) shit oh it gets under my skin I agree it's very suspenseful one of the things I was saying is that I had evaded seeing this movie for so long have went on to watch millions of horror movies mm-hmm. since. Then watched it and realized so many horror movies that I've seen are influenced by this movie. Oh, and I absolutely. never knew that. Like tons of The tropes. whole first person view of the killer, compare that oh, to yeah. the first Halloween with the first kill. And it's just, it's all there, you yeah. know? I mean, the idea that there's like a serial killer, the point of view slasher perspective from the camera the whole idea of a sorority house in general and also these like iconic kills. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of was breaking ground, I think, in a number of ways. Yeah, definitely. I feel like there were even elements from kind of a cinematography and from a directorial standpoint that I'm like, oh, we would look at things like this now and be like, oh, yes, queen. Like, I don't know how specifically you remember, but the boyfriend, he starts destroying the piano with the music stand. And then the sound of the destruction of the piano gets played over other people speaking. And it just creates that really strange, Mm. like, just morbid tension. You can't hear what they're saying, but you just hear the destruction. And I was like, girl, this would hold the fuck up in a modern horror movie. You know, and it's been redone a couple of times. Mm -hmm. But if we ever redo it... We have to cast Betty as the sorority <gasps> house mom. Oh my god! No! Oh my god! Yes! <laughs> I think I think her name is Mrs. Mac or something. Yeah, there. I mean, high camp. We're talking like Let's Mrs. Talk about Slocum it. level, like camp <laughs> bullshit. I was like, this thing is hiding whiskey in the tank of the toilet. Yes. I was oh like, is god. this Miss Kitty the day that she came to judge? <laughs> hey, where's the booze? Oh my god. <laughs> I was obsessed. Like when she comes back from buying groceries and the first thing she does is she opens the closet, finds a shoe box. There's an empty bottle of sherry. She's like, ah, 
puts it back in. I'm like, that is a fucking down ass bitch. Yeah. Oh, I mean, <laughs> she's iconic. I also feel like Barb is iconic as the drunken, sort of bisexual, really forward sexuality character. Like, I love her. I stan a legend. Yeah. Margot Kidder, too, like, is kind of seared into my mind as, like, Lois Lane. Yeah. People mm-hmm. will recognize her as Lois Lane in this, and she plays that kind of, like, badass female in the 70s. Yeah, she sort of was like, you know, one of the original kind of like troubled movie actress. Her death was tragic too, wasn't it? Yeah, she it was suicide. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I she has a that. really interesting story. I remember hearing that when I was a kid and we were like watching Superman Returns or whatever it was where there's like an earthquake and her car goes in it and all yeah. the stuff goes in her throat and kills her and I remember like someone in my family was like, "Oh, you know she killed herself." So I was like, Holy shit. Let's get back to Betty as the house mom and our Black Christmas booze hound. Yeah. (laughs) What's the character's name? Uh, Mrs. McHenry. Mrs. McHenry's like, you know what? She called me an alcoholic and bitch, I just might be. (laughs) (laughs) And Margot Kidder's getting drunk and getting wild at the dinner table. And she's like, let it out. Let hide out. (laughs) She says it to the killer through the wall. Oh my God. You know what? Speaking of the killer, there's a kill, my favorite kill in the movie, and I felt like it was so beautiful, and it would have been something that we could have put in a Dracula. And you know what? Mark my words now. We just might bitch because that like glass menagerie oh, that Margot yes. Kidder has over her bed. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it, it, yeah, it's totally. so gorgeous. And then, of course, you notice the unicorn. And it's so signature. She wasn't the only one that had a little unicorn collection as a young oh. girl. Because I did too. As a young <laughs> darling. <laughs> as soon as I saw the horn, I was like, oh my God, he's going to stab her with that. And, he, and then he totally. did. It was like so satisfying. Mm-hmm. So the kills were interesting, right? Yeah. They weren't super gruesome, but they were definitely uncomfortable. Yeah. And something I think viewers today might have to get their mind around is like the level of technology back then. Because mm-hmm. the rotary phone plays like a major role as Absolutely. an inanimate character in this movie. I didn't really pick up on the fact that every time there was a kill, there was a phone call. Yeah. Afterward. So in the credits, like, and I already knew, I'm like, I don't think it's the boyfriend. I don't think it's the boyfriend. Because I, I kind of could sense that mm-hmm. it definitely was not her. And then when the phone starts ringing at the end, that's your signal that she's dead. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, I didn't yeah. pick up on that. Oh, yeah. So, so the phone rings through the entire credits. I picked up on just how fucking epic it was to have the phone ring through the credits, but I didn't even put those together. But that is fucking amazing. Yeah. The movie is brilliant. I mean, yeah, there's it's so really many good. brilliant elements. One of the sickest scares too. So simple. I can't even remember what character it was. It, like the image is like seared in my head. Very close to the end, and I think the killer is, like, chasing the girl down, the pregnant character, you know, Jess, yeah, the final girl. And she looks up and sees his little <gasps> eyeball peeping through oh the hole on the wall. I mean, so he grabs her hair. I mean, screaming. We had a conversation yeah. at that moment because, you know, the guy on the phone is like, get out of the house. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, but my friends are upstairs. And I was like... Nobody would do that. I was like, they would haul ass out the door. Girl. And he was like, well, what if Ian and Nathan were upstairs? And I was like, ooh, you're right. Mm-hmm. I would have had to go up there. I mean, I feel like, well, one, I really appreciate that. But <laughs> I, I feel like in that moment, I don't know. I mean, maybe I am just, I'm more of a scaredy cat than Jess was. But I definitely would have been like, oh, my God, guys, run. Like, yeah. I would have been sprinting out of the house screaming because... I feel like that trope, which I realize now is from this film, the killer is inside the house. Like, yeah. That's such a potent fear. Totally. Yeah. And, oh God, you reminded me that the scene where she turns around and she sees the eye is terrifying. And I feel like they do something similar to that a couple of times in the film. Like when Mrs. Mack sees Claire's corpse for the first time, she goes up and she kind of looks around and then, bam, she sees 
in the window, the silhouette of Claire. And it was like, <gasps> like all the air gets sucked out of the room. Yeah. Genius. Again, for a film like that to hold up for so many years and still be legitimately scary, it is definitely like something to say. So for people at home, if you haven't watched it, a spoiler is you never learn who the killer is. You get all the way to the end of the movie and they never tell you who it was. So how did you all feel about the killer not being revealed? I liked it. I liked it better. Like it's the whole idea of like not over explaining your villain of the film or an arch nemesis or anything like mm-hmm. that. Like the more, you know, the more humanizing they are yeah. and to not know very much at all, or just that they alluded to, you know, Billy, he, yeah, think. Billy. And I think Agnes or another Alice, another female name. And then you think like, Oh, did they live in the house? Like where did all those kids toys and stuff come from in mm. the attic? Are, were they his toys? How long has he been in the attic? And you just start building the mythology in your own head as a viewer. That's so much more satisfying than be like, spelled all out. I am going to 100% agree with you and I'm going to have to confess something. I definitely thought that it was the boyfriend. I was like, girl, of course it's the boyfriend. It has to be. And then when, you know, again, spoiler, when the boyfriend is dead and Jess is alive, I was like, oh, they're going to put it on Jess. And then the killer was still in the house. I was like, oh, bitch, I have been taken for a ride. (laughs) I was researching it and interestingly... A little fact about it was Bob Clark, the guy who wrote and directed it, also directed Porky's and A Christmas Story. Whoa. Mama girl. I mean, Uh, A Christmas Story. Like classic. Bitch, so is Porky's. These are classic movies, like sign of the times. Right. Wow. But how weird is that? Like the movies are so different. You know, it makes a little bit of sense in one dimension in that I feel like this is a Christmas movie. Not in that it's like. Ho, ho, ho. It's all Christmassy all the fucking time, but it just feels like Christmas. Yeah. Like it feels cold and there's Christmas decorations everywhere. And I feel like they nailed that as like a, this is a Christmas movie. I agree. Yeah. Well, for those of you that are listening out there and you want to catch Black Christmas, you can watch it now streaming on Shutter. And if you want to follow along with our Creature Feature movie review, two films that you can watch, which we will be reviewing next, Halloween Kills Director's Cut, which I think one of our last listener questions they were inquiring what our thoughts were and shutter's anthology horror noir not to be confused with the shutter documentary of the same name check those out if you want to partake in our next couple of reviews and we will be right back hello uglies you didn't think we would forget about the u.s did you The Boulay Brothers Dragula Season 4 U.S. Tour will be haunting you soon in the spring of 2022, featuring the top monsters from Season 4. Tickets and VIP upgrades go on sale in January, so sign up to be the first to find out all of the gory details at DragulaLive.com. Do it now or die. All right, Ian, if you will do the honors, I think it's time to move on to our listener mail. Tyler from Corland writes, I'm a queer literature professor, and I'm a huge fan of the Blair Brothers Dragula. I only recently discovered the podcast and have been listening to every episode from the beginning. When Swan announced that reading is really fucking fun in your discussion of Necroscope, I literally cheered in my car. Your conversations on the podcast are so nuanced, insightful, and analytical, and your role on the show often feels less like judging and more like teaching, in which you guide and mentor contestants to find their own voice. This has made me wonder, is there a particular class you took that shaped who you are as a thinker and mentor? 
If you could teach or take a dream class, what would it be? Wow, this is like a really layered, insightful question. First of all, there's like a lot of compliments in there. So thank you, Tyler from Coraline. I appreciate the accolades coming from a teacher yourself too. A so. queer literature yeah. professor, target audience. Hey. <laughs> exactly. As it's always been. What do you think, Drac? Is there any class that's made you or shaped you as a thinker? Uh, or a mentor or a dream class that you'd like to teach? God, there's so many classes I'd like to take. I love history, so I'd love to take more history classes. I don't know. There's a million things. But probably like a literature class I took was probably the most impactful for me. I had teachers that were like very encouraging. Tell me what a star I was and how oh. talented I was. <laughs> yeah. I think encouragement <laughs> is like number one. Because I can think back to very early teachers, like even like my second grade teacher. She encouraged so much creativity in me. And even during recess, I was like, I learned a new song. And she literally played the guitar. She's like, well, I'll play the guitar and you can sing it for the class. And I was like, then I was like, well, I want my friends to act out the song. Can I like give them roles? And she was like, yes, go ahead and give them roles. Bitch, I had them on the side of the school. She's singing her guitar. I'm singing the song and my friends are acting it out. And that has stuck with me forever. That is so fucking cute. (laughs) It is cute. Yeah, even like through high school, it's just about encouraging people in areas that they shine. I think that's what I would like to do. And that's what shaped me too. I said that sarcastically, but honestly, that was a teacher that was very encouraging to me. And that's kind of what I'm saying too. Like encouragement is the most important thing I yeah. would think, right? Cause yeah, like I think many so. of them did not and mm. were not encouraging. I think those make little scars and create little yeah. fences and barriers, even in your own mind. I can yeah. think of even family members who you share something with and like, you can't do that. And as a child, you're like, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. It could take you a lifetime to understand that you actually could. It's weird. I was talking to someone recently about this. I'm like, I feel like you shouldn't even go to school until you're older. <laughs> Fuck you school. know what I mean? Because <laughs> I'm like, it's like, you don't want to be in school at that age. You want to be out and doing things. And then mm. you get a little older. You're like, damn, I really wish I knew about that. You could just sit and focus and like do schoolwork a lot yeah. easier later in life than I think you could when you're like a teenager. I don't know. I loved school when I was younger. I love learning and I love structured learning. Like there is definitely nothing better to me than here's a syllabus of all the shit you need to read and then we'll talk about it. I love that kind of shit. I didn't have that kind of discipline. I was like too wild and my imagination like took me away. Like I was the kid sitting in my literature class looking out the fucking window. I'm like, I hate it here. I want (laughs) to leave so bad. (laughs) Mike from Dundee, Scotland writes, I was watching the finale of season four an amazing season, the best yet, and noticed something during the podcast section where you interviewed the top four. It looked like you could tell how clumsy each of you are by how much protection you had on your laptops. Wow. Ian, not clumsy at all, no case required. Drac, a little clumsy, simple protective case installed. Swan, move all the breakables. Swan is coming through, level protection. Is this an accurate observation? (laughs) That is hilarious. I would say it is inaccurate. I don't know any of us to be clumsy, actually. Yeah, I would definitely say that. I mean, I really appreciate that analysis, but mine comes from, I literally didn't even know that you could put a case on your laptop until you guys got cases. I was like, <laughs> I was like, hold on, wait, wait a minute, what the fuck? <laughs> I thought it was funny because someone had pointed out, they're like, oh my God, look. It's the details. That's why I love Dracula. Oh Swan, oh Swan's God. laptop is a little smaller than Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, Drac has a 15-inch screen and Swan has a 13-inch screen. Oh, my God. How adorable. I love Dracula. They're always devils in the details. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. 
Wow. Hilarious. <laughs> and I'm not clumsy at all. Shannon from Easley, North Carolina says, I really felt like this season, there were a lot of moments where we got to peek behind the curtain. The one-on-ones with Drack and Swan during Judgment, the filler conversations at the Last Supper, and even the podcast interviews. Was this a deliberate choice, or was this just something that happened organically during filming? I guess it was a little bit. It was more like this. I know in season two, I felt like people thought that Judgment was too long, so we really scaled it back in season three. And in fact, as we all know, we infamously didn't do a deliberation at the finale. Yeah. We try to pay attention to what fans want and what they say, and it seemed like they wanted that deliberation. We thought we'd pop it back in, and I guess people liked it. Yeah, my answer would be both. Like, we deliberately chose to show our candid conversations, probably stemming from the success and the comfort that we've created around Creatures of the Night and the response that we get from our audience and saying mm-hmm. like, oh, we really love to hear how you guys really feel and how we, you really talk. Because, of course, there's the visage of like Drag and Swan. And then there are the artists that live inside of our drag that when we talk about mentoring contestants and trying to help them through their creative process and get them to be the best versions of themselves possible. And then there are those fun little moments that kind of organically happen. Like Drag is like, and when we say cut, you keep those cameras rolling. <laughs> and then all, all the stuff that happens, it's gold. It's yeah. so good. Valerie from New York asks, I'm a big fan of Swan Thula's book nook, and I was wondering if you'll be picking it up in the new year. Well, thank you, Valerie. And I don't know. I'm not sure. I think we've alluded to maybe expanding into like graphic novels, mm-hmm. something a little lighter and more easily consumed. And there's a lot of really good ones. So I'll say soft yes, but I'm not sure when. Ben writes, I was wondering if there was a specific reason behind the set for the Last Supper episodes no longer being designed to mimic the Da Vinci painting like it was in seasons one and two. I feel that it had such a powerful visual impact, but imagine it must have made conversation and arguments much more difficult with everyone sitting on one side of the same table. Is it something that you might consider bringing back in another format, or have you moved on from the concept entirely? I don't know. I feel like it makes everyone turn their heads in really weird, uncomfortable angles, which sometimes can be comedic, but sometimes it's, you know, a little hard to film, I think, right? Yeah. It forced us to keep everyone on the same plane, sort of Mm -hmm. visually, and it just wasn't conducive to filming, even Mm -hmm. though the visual of The Last Supper was really cool. Plus, we change it up all the time anyway. We may go back to that. We may transform the format again. We probably will. Adam writes... I wanted to say, first off, season four has been my favorite season of the show ever. It was such a blast watching it and seeing everyone on Twitter react to it in real time, my first time watching the show as it was coming out. And I was wondering if we will see the first three seasons make their way onto Shudder 2 at some point. Absolutely, yes. And sometime very soon. That's all the time we have for questions for this episode, but if you have a question you would like answered by us on air, please write to us at creatures at bouletbrothersdragula.com and let us know where you are writing from. We love to hear from you. Now, it's time to change the mood a little and bring down the lights as we prepare for this episode's Haunting of History. For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life, documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown.
Originating from Algonquian Native American folklore, there is a tale that describes a lost hunter, unable to find his way back to his tribe during a particularly brutal winter storm. Isolated and afraid, the hunter spends his days in the blinding snow, desperately searching for food, and his nights fending off predators in the dark, as well as the madness and hunger growing inside him. When the hunter could not bear his suffering any longer, he succumbed to his hunger, killing and eating the first person across his path. This act of desperate cannibalism transformed the hunter into something monstrous, a creature of myth forever roaming the woods in search of human flesh to quell his ravenous, unending hunger. While the details of the myth vary depending on the individual folklore of the numerous Algonquian tribes who make mention of the creature, at times depicted with human-like characteristics and at others more closely resembling the appearance of a wolf, the Wendigo has stalked the woods of North America for centuries, becoming synonymous with insatiable greed, murder, cannibalism, and the primal fear of evil lurking just beyond the trees. The Wendigo, as both a monstrous cryptid and a cultural metaphor, is part of the belief system of several groups of Algonquian-speaking tribes in the United States, including the Ojibwe, Cree, Naskapi, and the Innu people, who all have similar myths and folklore related to the creature. Although physical descriptions of the Wendigo are varied, as well as the method of creating or becoming a Wendigo, all creatures with Wendigo mythology present the creature as a malevolent, cannibalistic monster with supernatural properties. Some traditions present humans overpowered by greed transforming into Wendigos, a physical manifestation of the destructive and cannibalistic nature of their avarice, while other sources say that Wendigos are created by evil spirits possessing those who resort to cannibalism to survive. In traditional indigenous folklore and at odds with modern pop cultural depictions, the Wendigo is described as a humanoid creature rather than a werewolf-like beast. Basil H. Johnston, an Ojibwe scholar within the ethnology department of the Royal Ontario Museum, wrote of the Wendigo, quote, The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave, giving off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption, end quote. In addition to these physical descriptors, the Wendigo is also said to possess paranormally enhanced hunting abilities such as supernatural strength, stamina, eyesight, hearing, and a silent gait, painting a portrait of a ghoulish apex predator capable of stalking its prey unseen before overpowering and devouring its human victims. Some legends claim that Wendigos can be killed with conventional weapons, while others have determined that the ice-covered heart of the Wendigo must be removed and destroyed by a powerful shaman in order to truly kill the beast. Unlike other popular Western mythological creatures such as the vampire or werewolf, the Wendigo is a relatively new addition to the cryptozoological landscape of horror films and media. Diverging from traditional visual representations of the creature, most westernized depictions of the beast in modern pop culture display a more human-beast hybrid form, often drawing from Eurocentric fears and superstitions of lycanthropes, typically featuring a werewolf-like body with antlers or horns. Early examples of this sort of physical attribution can be found dating back to the 1930s and would later inspire Stephen King to create his Wendigo, the central antagonist of Pet Cemetery, that would cement the Euro-Western design of the creature for more recent iterations of the beast. While the monstrous, cannibal Wendigo may have just begun its reign of terror within the pop culture landscape, the deep cultural significance of the creature should be recognized. 
Within many indigenous communities, the myth of the Wendigo represents the personification of real-life problems such as greed, selfishness, and both physical and systemic violence, with the Wendigo serving as a nightmarish warning against these issues. However, Wendigo sightings are still reported throughout northern Ontario to this day, so much so that the city of Kenora in Ontario, Canada, has been given the title of the Wendigo Capital of the World. Whether or not you believe that a cannibalistic human-beast hybrid lurks within the woods, silently searching for a meal to devour, the Wendigo is not just another cryptid to be hunted by those interested in the paranormal. Having haunted the annals of history for centuries in both myth and metaphor, the Wendigo is no stranger to stalking its prey, waiting until you are alone, tired, and desperate before claiming another victim and a brief respite from its insatiable hunger. That's all the time we have for now, children. If you're enjoying the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night, we want to remind you to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and to also encourage everyone you know to do the same. We'll see you back here on the next episode of Dread Central's Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. Thanks for listening. The Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night is a Dread Central production. Hosted by the Boulay Brothers with their co-host and producer, Ian DeVogler. Engineered and mixed by Carlos Bueno with music by Neuron Spectre.